Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level Low power frequency radio modulation The big sound from underground another power No change, change without, without struggle. struggle No one in power ain't giving up nothing No change without struggle No one in power W-O-R-T, 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am Esti Dinor. The recent rescue of four Huitoto siblings in the Colombian jungle after 40 days on their own struck me as important beyond the actual rescue, which of course was a uh, very uh, important moment. And um, I have with me Richard Emblin, who is the director and editor-in-chief of the City Paper, which is Colombia's English language media company, to discuss um, some of the issues that came to me and haven't really... Um, been discussed in the media that I'm aware of anyway. Um, so one remarkable thing about it is that uh, countries all over the world have been known to enslave, attack, even genocide indigenous peoples, and in many cases kidnap their children into culture-erasing and often murderous residential schools. And in this case, I think... I think for the first time ever, I may be wrong, but um, to the best of uh, my knowledge, the state puts, put its power and resources behind finding indigenous children. Um, Richard, I don't know, are you aware of something like that happening before? And if not, um, how do you explain it? This is, um, again, it seems to me very, very important. Thank you, Esti. Yes, it's actually a, a fundamental part of, of, of Colombia's cultural and social fabric. In the Constitution of 1991, the country gave unprecedented powers to indigenous groups. And essentially, Colombia, given the social conflict and the internal conflict between warring parties, the long-standing FARC conflict that lasted more than half a half century, The, the insurgent groups such as ELN, there's a great sense of um, belonging, Colombians feel, to their indigenous peoples. Uh, they are fundamental to the entire economic dynamic of the nation, from small-time small harvesters in the Sierra Nevada to cacao growers, I mean, you know, chocolate growers in, in the south and Amazon basin to, yes, even the coca plantation uh, harvesters in Cauca, the uh, Afro-Colombian fishermen along the Pacific coast. There is a very strong sense of identities that have been ensconced in, in, the, in the national identity and the political framework to give and recognize indigenous peoples as having territorial rights. They have, uh, they have educational rights. They, we have over 34 different indigenous languages that are promoted and taught in indigenous schools or in rural areas where there's a majority indigenous population. So, yes, this is quite um, a show, I think, that the rescue, beyond being an absolutely fantastic end to a drama that could have ended terribly for these four children, um, well, I'm talking about the, the boy, the girl, the baby, Um, who lost their mother in the plane crash, it was a show that the government can work very closely with territorial entities, such as the Indigenous National Guard, who know the rainforest, who know the really rough Amazonian terrain, to try to locate these children. And it wasn't just a matter of tracking them. It wasn't a matter of using just high-end technology, bringing in drones, 
helicopter gun, you know, gunships, Bell 212s, Black Hawks, all the military firepower, let's say, to fly over this very dense rainforest, but using an indigenous methodology to reach out to these children by finding tracks, talking, uh, uh, calling in shamans to see whether they had any dream cycles, whether they could pick up messages in their dreams through ayahuasca, which is a type of uh, uh, a very potent brew that's used by the indigenous peoples in the Amazon that sends you into kind of a trance and then you can interpret your dreams. And uh, it's very important ritual. It's a medicinal ritual, but unfortunately gets badly used by a lot of tourists. Uh, but within an indigenous community, it's, it's the highest level, let's say, of atonement of reaching another plane of communicating with the animal world, with the natural world. And I think this all played a very important part in the rescue of these children. Yeah, and I want to get to that. Um, I agree with you. It, it's, um, well, it's really amazing. But um, so you said that um, since 1991, it, it has been embedded in the Constitution that um, um, indigenous peoples have their rights and so on. But um, it really wasn't that long ago that the army um, was really warring with um, indigenous peoples. Um, so, so another thing that I find incredible, or, you know, really amazing, maybe not incredible, but really um, excellent is the collaboration of the army and and the the indigenous searchers. Um, can you talk about that that history of the state against the uh, indigenous peoples and did it really end in 1991? Well, I don't think there's ever been a, a de facto war against the indigenous peoples. This the 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 wars, let's say, between the indigenous peoples really date back to like the rubber trade uh, of the 19th century of the Peruvian rubber company and the Putumayo and the Amazon, where precisely they enslaved the Wichoto peoples. Um, and this is, of course, one of the great genocides of the Amazon was what the Peruvian rubber company did to the Witoto people. Talk, talk about that in detail, please. I, I think people are not aware of that history, and I think it's very important. Well, in the late, in the very late 19th century, the cast, that whole area of the Amazon, which today is considered the, the three-nation triangle, that corner of Brazil, the corner of Colombia, and the corner of Peru, was all kind of a big territorial scramble. Nobody really knew where the borders were. And it was under control of the big Peruvian uh, rubber company. Uh, this was a time when the automobiles were beginning to wheels and rubber were being seen as a as a as an important component in western society for industry and so rubber was becoming a very global commodity uh the witotos who inhabited that area of the amazon uh all the way from that triangle where the three nations today meet to the interior very much to where the accident the plane crash happened is essentially witoto land now, the Witotos are a very big tribe, and they are a very, very educated, very well-versed in the jungle uh, peoples because they inhabit the, main, the, the deepest parts of the Amazon. Rivers and areas and estuaries and regions of Colombia where, most, where there are still many lost tribes. In other words, I'm talking about cultures and peoples that have not been identified mm -hmm. or seen, but they are there. Mm -hmm. And they have been documented by anthropologists and they, I mean, there. So the rubber company, basically, they put these people to work as slaves. They, they enslaved the Witotos to cut rubber trees. They were beaten mercilessly. They were executed. Uh, they were starved. And uh, they were, that was the big genocide. I think something like 30,000 Witotos were killed by the Peruvian rubber company. The British and the Americans in the 1910, 1920s, just after... Uh, actually just after World War One, so it'd be like 1920s, uh, they banned and they um, they literally almost went to war with Peru over the treatment of the Witotos. Hmm. So 
this is their history. That this is a fundamental part of the of the Vitoto history. In terms of the Colombian army, well, the truth of the matter is, Esti, the the army has always been at war in Colombia with illegal armed groups, rebels, insurgents, narco paramilitaries, paramilitaries. I mean, the list, the, the Colombian slate of internal conflict is endless. However, it's never been directly engaged in war against the Indians the, or our indigenous peoples. The problem is that the indigenous peoples in Colombia occupy very important areas, swaths of land where there's a lot of coca production. And they are many of them are subsistence farms. So they get their, they have been fumigated, unfortunately, in the war against drugs. They've had their, their land destroyed uh, with manual eradication. Uh, in other words, there has been an indirect war waged against indigenous peoples. The problem also is that they have so much control over territorial areas of Colombia that when illegal armed groups are trying to move drugs, narcotics, i.e. cocaine, from one end of the country to ports upon the Pacific, they have to go through these indigenous lands. And so they get up ending, unfortunately, victims uh, in the crossfire between these illegal armed groups like FARC or FARC dissidents now, the ELN, drug traffickers, uh, these 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 uh, new cartels that are 100% dedicated to drug smuggling, and the army and police that are trying to combat these, these big criminal organizations. So the tragedy of the whole thing is that our indigenous peoples are always caught in the crossfire. And it's not that they are being attacked by one side, they're just being, they're caught in a violent war that has not subsided, unfortunately. And we all were thinking that with a peace agreement of 1996 with the FARC that the levels of intensity of violence would go down. But once again, but what they have shown is a determination and they are very, I mean, they, they have a sense of being Colombians. They are Colombians and, uh, and they feel a great sense of identity to the Colombia as a territory, to, um, to their nation. And of course the army plays a fundamental role in that in giving a state presence in many parts of the country where there is no state presence. And I think that will lead us to another question eventually. Yeah, yeah. Um, but first, let me ask you that. Um, from what I understand, the family was on this plane along with with a Witoto elder because they were threatened by a gang or something like that. Uh, why were they? What, what were they doing on this plane? Well, precisely. You see, the father, the father, was already uh, had death threats against his life by the FARC dissidents that operate in the zone. Mm. It's, these are former guerrillas who turned their backs on the on the peace accord with the government and said, "You know what? I'm going to I'm going to make more money continuing being a drug trafficker and a guerrilla than if I sign a peace agreement." And they put me in a hut somewhere, and I have to just wait for government assistance. So he already had a death threat. And the tragedy of this whole story, in a way, that, I mean, that these children were going to be recruited by the guerrilla. They were going to be recruited by this Marxist, the, the leftist, if they're not even Marxist these days. I don't even think a lot of these fuck distance have any ideology beyond drug smuggling and drug trafficking. Yeah. Um, they were going to be recruited. And they do recruit. And they recruit children as young, six, seven, into their rank and file. Really? So he protecting his children, his daughters, his two daughters and the little boy. Uh, he put them on a plane with the baby and the mother to leave where they were. Uh, this is a place called the Araquara, and it's a very deep area of the Colombian estuaries that flow into the Colombian Amazon. It's one of the big, beautiful rivers of Colombia called the Apoporis. It goes past uh, that region of the Araquara, uh, canyons and and uh, rock art and and lost you know mountain tops that have never been explored and full of you know ancient rock drawings, and he took them out to precisely to save them from uh, that they could be recruited by one of these armed criminal groups, mm -hmm. and it was then that well the mother, the the baby, um, the at the two girls. And the the youngest boy, uh, 39, 7, and 11 months old, 
They were on that place playing with an indigenous guide. Uh, and he was a co- helping the family get out of the region due to the violence. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly when they crashed. So they went from trying to flee an internal conflict to almost dying in the very rainforest, not, well, quite far from where they took off, but really on a flight distance, probably 35 minutes. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, I mean, it's a tragedy because these children have now suffered. They were suffering the internal conflict, the, the, the fear of forced recruitment into an illegal armed group. Many of these young girls are used as sex, sex slaves uh, for the armed, uh, armed rebel commanders. Then they find themselves crashed. Their mother dies over four days and they were terrified. They, they just didn't know who to turn to. And it was they, it was very smart move of the Colombian government to put the indigenous peoples to be on the front line of the rescue. Because at least they, the children, could uh, identify with the indigenous peoples because they were hearing helicopters overhead and saying, uh-oh, who's coming after us? So these children are going to suffer from a very profound trauma on many, many different levels. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so um, another, of course, amazing thing that has been discussed um, is the fact that um, Leslie, the fourteen, the thirteen-year-old, um, knew the jungle well enough to keep her three siblings, um, maybe malnourished but nourished anyway, and to keep them away from uh, snakes and jaguars and and whatever else is in this um, deep forest. And uh, I'm thinking I wouldn't have known, right? Um, so that also is, I think, um, an important reminder or or maybe just a wake-up call to a lot of people that the indigenous people carry a lot of uh, wisdom with them. And um, in this case, we can see how they transmit it to their children who are then able to use it. So, yeah, if you can talk about that. Absolutely. Many, the majority of indigenous tribes in Colombia don't really have a written history. They have an oral history. They hand things down from generation to generation. There's a very important indigenous community in Colombia called the Wayu, who live on the northern coastline of the country. And they have never had a written tradition. They have a set of a legal, their legal way of conflict resolution, resolving family disputes, land disputes, agricultural disputes, is a law that's been handed down by word of mouth for hundreds of years. The same applies with the Witoto. The Witoto have a very strong, and Witoto, the Nukak, the Inga, the Insa, all of our main Colombian tribal tribes have very strong oral traditions. So it's a, the, the tribe's responsibility, the elders, to impart knowledge to the younger generation that they must understand the medicinal properties of the rainforest, how to eat in the rainforest, how to hunt in a rainforest, how to get how what is used in a community and what cannot should not be used. Fishing cycles, hunting cycles, climate patterns. I mean, all of this is handed down. And actually, it's one of the very sad aspects of Colombia. I talk to a lot of indigenous elders, you know, men, because they're all men, the elders, hmm. uh, unless you're the YU and it's a matriarchal system. But they they say that they these young people are leaving the, their communities because they get lured by the big cities. They want to become part of the social media environment. They want to wear the latest sneakers. They want to feel recognized as modern youngsters and they're not learning about their ancestral traditions, whether it's the rainforest or the high Andes or the deserts of Aguajira. So you're right. It's a very important part. It's a systemic part of the culture, the old traditions. I make a small anecdote. In, in 1995, I crossed the Darien Gap on foot. 
as part of a major first botanical expedition to cross between Colombia and Panama. Same place where tens of thousands of migrants today are moving north towards the United States, which at least they trying to get to Panama. This is more dead, this is more in hospital rainforest than anywhere in the world. And I was accompanied by three members of the Embera indigenous tribe. And it would be amazing that you're in a rainforest where the trees everywhere, no rivers or rivers that you can identify or streams, and yet you can drink fresh sparkling water from the trees if you know exactly which tree trunk to cut, how to cut it, what berries to eat. In other words, we were literally feasting our way or drinking from tree trunks with a machete that was sliced and we went, we got thirsty and it was like saying, no, I need some bottled water. And the indigenous man was fine and then he handed it to you and said, look, just drink it. And it was fantastic, perrier, sparkling water in the middle of a rainforest. So these are things that we in our Western societies have no idea of how to survive. Uh, they do. And it was brilliant in a way, in a way, Leslie's survival and the, one of the baby and, and, a, and a sister and little brother had all to do because her grandmother had taught her the essentials of the rainforest. You know, I mean, yeah. she was young, but she knew she, she, she could see that if this bird ate that berry, I can eat this berry. Yeah. You know, if I if I can eat this little worm on the side of a tree bark, it can keep give me protein. Oh, I can I can chew on these natural plants and I can get my energy levels restored. So amazing. It's it's that's actually a story of inspiration. It's a story that we live in total ignorance of the uns of the natural world. And we still, as a civilization, we still live in ignorance of a planet that can feed us, that can save us, and that can give us the medicines we need. Yeah, my guest is Richard Emblin. He is the director and editor-in-chief of The City Paper, which is Colombia's English-language media company. And um, what you were just talking about um, raised two questions in, in my head. And a, a quick one, go, it goes back to the history of the Witoto. Um, when all this came down and I read about the Witoto, I realized that I have seen a film about them maybe a couple years ago, um, which I probably was, um, was from Colombia, though I seem to think it was from Peru, but one of these countries... And um, it was about the exploitation of the Witoto by their rubber barons, and it showed uh, how they know how to cut the rubber tree so that they keep growing, they keep being alive, but the rubber comes out. And um, in one terrible scene, it showed, uh, so, so they rebelled against their enslavement, and... Um, Then at night, when there were all maybe a hundred of them in in this hut, the um, owner got um, his um, I don't know his um, other people to uh, burn the hut and um, all of these uh, we total in them do, do do you know what the film I'm talking about? I've been trying to find it and I Yeah. Well, there's a very beautiful Colombian film came out called The Embrace of the Serpent. But it's, yeah, it, that it's might be part it. of that history. And um, it's all got to do with the Witoto peoples. Uh, this is a relatively, I would say, new film. It was nominated for an Academy Award and Best Foreign Language Film done by a Colombian film director called Ciro Guerra. Beautiful, all shot in black and white. And it's about the relationship between the Witotos and the American anthropologist botanist called Richard Evan Schultz, who traveled to the heart of the Witoto territories uh, during the 1940s. But and uh, they, his encounter with the elders of the Witoto in the heart of the Amazon. Uh, I, uh, the, the rubber company film, it's, that's well, pretty much the story, was they had a huge outpost in along the Putumayo River called the Casa Arana, 
and it was basically a huge hut uh, where they, uh, where the owners, as you rightly call them, the rubber barons, uh, resided, and pretty much controlled, had these young men and women enslaved in chains and shackles, and while they were in shackles, from head to head, from neck, from neck chains to neck chains, they had to cut rubber trees. And if they didn't, they were executed. It was really a really horrendous part of, I would say, Peruvian history. But and it were, and it not being for the British, really, and the Americans, uh, their denouncement, um, the Casarana had to be shut down. Um, but anyway, yeah, I don't remember the film, but I know there's a beautiful film, and you should see it called "The Embrace of the Serpent," and it's about the Witoto peoples. Yeah, I think what I saw is maybe different, but I remember also the name, The Embrace of the Serpent. I'm not sure if I saw it or not. But anyway, let's get back to um, to what we're talking about. I, I also wanted to say that what you had just said. Um, so you're right that, you know, Western um, civilization does not, have this knowledge we we don't have this um, observationary knowledge we have um, science and we have that notion that um, the West is superior and that white people are superior to people of other skin colors and um, again I my hope is that this um, rescue, Um, has opened maybe a few eyes to really the importance and, and the magnificence of um, indigenous people. Um, I, I agree 100%. Go ahead. I agree 100%. And I think that what's also wonderful of Colombia, and I really stress, I mean, I'm not trying to, uh, you know, exalt too much the country because it has a lot of internal problems. Uh, was the fact that even no matter how bad things can be on a political level or how a nation can still be so polarized over fundamental issues such as a peace process, uh, tax reforms, um, different economic models, um, which, which should be adapted. We just elected our first leftist leader, president last year. In a historic in a historic election uh, Colombia to elect a, a, a quite an, a former guerrilla to become president of a country is quite a watershed moment in the country however when things when it comes down to saving or looking for fellow Colombians all the politics all the ideology all the politicking <clears throat> gets pushed aside and everybody rallies together. They're Colombians. And actually, in fact, I get a lot of the, well, I get all the, all the media feeds directly from the Ministry of Defense, from different indigenous groups. I get it all. And uh, it was amazing because, of course, if they rescued these four children, but one of the dogs yeah. uh, went missing and um, they're still looking. I mean, they've been looking for this sniffer dog and... It's, they still have soldiers in the jungle trying to find their sniffer dog, and he played a fundamental role in rescuing these children. He found the and, children. Uh, what? He found the children, right? Well, he did, exactly. He, he, led them, he, he led the trail, let's say. He found the first, there were two. There was one called Ulysses, who spotted the first items in the forest, a nappy, some hairbands, a pair of scissors, and a little baby bottle underneath a, a leaf it was very hard to detect and he led them he, he, he sniffed it out and then it showed a footprint so it, there was no blood on the footprint there had been no trail of blood so the conclusion was that the children had not been injured in the crash which is also quite amazing to think that the pilot the indigenous assistant and the mother died But the 11-year-old baby, the 11-month-year-old baby, Leslie, 13, and her, her sister and brother came out unharmed. I mean, yeah. they walked away from the plane crash without any injuries. There was actually, talking about that, was, there was actually speculation. Uh, the indigenous peoples, they spoke to one of the big shamans, 
and he said, uh, very interesting, this did not come out in the English media and it did not come out in any translated version of the English media, but they spoke to, when they had found those elements, they spoke to a, a very important religious shaman of one of the indigenous tribes in the Amazon. And he, he made a statement in his own language saying that there had been a, a, a guardian, a protector of the rainforest, what he called a duende. It's like a dwarf, but it's not really a dwarf. It's kind of a mythological spirit of the jungle was with them and that he could see it in his dreams and he was keeping them company and that he was protecting them and that, it, that when he felt that the forest would hand them back, Forest would hand me back. I know all of this sounds really kind of far out there. Not to me. It gives me shivers well, up my spine. <laughs> I agree. And to a lot of Colombians, nobody mocked it. You know, if a shaman said that the children are alive and they're in the custody of, an, of a guardian spirit of the rainforest, uh, people, you know, they take it seriously. They don't, we don't mock our indigenous peoples. I mean, they are very strong beliefs and uh, 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 and they know what they're talking about i mean and, and so i thought that was actually quite marvelous and i think in many ways he was right i think these children were protected by, because they didn't they did not get attacked by jaguars they did not uh, they did not fall down a cliff into uh, into an abyss they would they, they were not uh, i mean yes they were malnourished but they were all i mean Imagine an 11 year old 11 month old baby who had been accustomed to breastfeeding how is she going to be kept alive yeah yeah no and um f- I read about um what the um what the native the the indigenous rescuers did and um It looks like um, let me see here. Some of them did not eat animals for 40 days as an offering to the forest, not even a snake until the kids appeared. One of them said and um, that they employed spiritual strategies uh, and that these were fundamental to the rescue. The searchers, as you mentioned, um, some of them took yage, I suppose is what they're called, ayahuasca, and um, and um, here I'm reading this. The breakthrough eventually came on 8 June when a group from the Murui people, natives to the region where the plane crashed, performed a ceremony chanting and consuming yage in the hope of receiving spiritual guidance. Some people become anacondas during these ceremonies, yeah. some tigers, others large bird. I don't know what animals the Murui transformed in, into that night, but it was what brought them to circle back towards the crash site where they found the kids, and the kids were found that next day. So, um, yeah. <laughs> well, there's a fan- I'm a very good friend with an American author called Jimmy Whitescoff. He lives in Colombia and he's the world expert, leading expert on Yahe Ayahuasca. Yahe, okay. Uh, he has spent a lot of time, he does it kind of every six months to a year. He does a spiritual cleansing. He goes from Bogota to see his shaman in the Amazon and he rests and they sleep. He sleeps on the mud floor of a hut and then he consumes this brew. It's like a hot broth. Uh, made all from from plants and t- twigs and roots. And then he goes, he kind of leaves his body and you, you're right, you, you become an animal or you become the element, the natural element you want to become or that nature tells you you should become. So I'm um, no doubt at all that a lot of these, these indigenous men uh, were being flying over the rainforest at three in the morning as eagles and they could probably spot things from the sky. Uh, does not sound at all far out or, or far off to me. What I do think is interesting is that this, this, these rituals, Amazonian rituals, are only found in the Amazon. But indigenous tribes from all over Colombia, from high altitude mountain ranges like the like the Ahuaco peoples and the Kogi peoples and the Wiwa people who live in the highest coastal mountain of the world, 
the Sierra Nevada, which is right next to Santa Marta, which looks at the Caribbean, which is only like two hours away from Miami, they joined the surge. So indigenous peoples that have no connection to the ancestral knowledge of the Huitotos or the Nukak or the Ingas, they were, they were joining as an act of solidarity because even though an Arhuaco who lives at 1,800 meters above sea level and cultivates coffee and sheep, he doesn't know what's going on in the rainforest, um, they, it showed a great act of solidarity between Colombia's indigenous peoples. So that was also really faith affirming for all of us. Yeah, yeah. And then um, one of these indigenous rescuers said that um, the success, which um, apparently was quite obviously due to the work, the, the physical and the spiritual work of the indigenous peoples, has changed the soldiers' opinions of Colombia's indigenous people, and the way he put it, who tend to make the news only when clashing with security forces in protest yeah. against extractive projects. So, um, yeah. Anything you'd like to add to that? I, I completely agree with that. I think it's wonderful. I think that the level sometimes media uh, fuels the, the, the barriers between uh, peoples who are exactly the same. Uh, tragically, in Colombia, we have a mandatory military service for men under the age of, you know, for men 18 to above if they don't go on to college. And the majority of our young soldiers in Colombia are, well, uh, are, are from lower income households. Mm -hmm are many from the same regions as where the indigenous groups live and reside, so they come in contact with them. Unfortunately, these clashes over coca plantations and coca eradication, which the army is forced to do, and the indigenous put up a fight saying, don't tread on my land, I'm growing coca leaves here because that's what I can eat and I can survive on. It's so, it, 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 what you said is completely right. It opened up a narrative, it opened up a dialogue and I think that is so fundamental for a sense of reconciliation in a country that has not really learned to reconcile itself uh, since, since, since the birth of the nation. It's been at war in some way, some strange way or another. And unfortunately, the social conflict that we live with armed groups, rebels, drug traffickers, uh, just has not made reconciliation possible. And I think this story about the Amazon children reaffirmed and gave faith that we can have some level of reconciliation and we have to think twice before classifying either the army as, you know, murderous terrorists or the indigenous as, you know, all self-righteous. No, they're, they're, they're good people and there were people that have the, the, the interests of the nation at heart. And I think this story reflects the best of Colombia and really... Yeah. Let's hope we can keep it that way. Yeah, yeah. And I realize, Richard, that I haven't invited people to call in, and probably because I think that what we're talking about is uh, not not well known, and and I do want to make sure that we get to all of it. But if people has have relevant uh, questions or comments, we still have about 15 minutes, 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can join us also on social media, at War Talk on Twitter or a public affair on uh, Facebook. And my guest again is Richard Emblin, who is director and editor-in-chief of the City Paper, Colombia's English language media company. So um, let's, um, let's talk, Richard, about these extractive projects that uh, make native people clash with the military. What's going I, I mean, that's a story that's going all over the world. What specifically is going on in Colombia in that sense? Well, you know, unfortunately, um, we've had a record amount of coca harvest in the last couple of years. One of the things of the previous or two previous governments, when they signed the peace agreement with FARC, which was the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia guerrillas, 
the longest standing and oldest left-wing guerrilla group in Latin America. Um, Santos, then-President Santos, uh, outlawed aerial fumigation of coca plantations. Uh, hmm. Colombia has an, had back then an average of 120,000 acres of coca plantations harvested. Now, coca and cocaine is quite a long way from each other. One thing is a plant that's used widely across Latin America to cure altitude sickness, uh, stomach problems. Uh, it's a coca leaf. It's quite highly medicinal. And, you know, we've seen this in other countries. Marijuana has virtually all but legalized around the world. And at one point it was being fumigated and there was a war on drugs over marijuana. And it wasn't a long time ago. It was the 1960s. So uh, cocaine is a very long way in the chemical process from coca leaf. But coca leaf is the base product for cocaine. And there's been a global, the global demand for cocaine continues, tragically. And uh, it continues to be a main, like the growing of coca continues to be a main source of income for subsistence farmers across Colombia, whether they're indigenous or not. When Santos decided that aerial fumigation with glyphosate, which in the United States is called Roundup, would be banned, and the Sup Supreme Court approved it, there can be no more fumigating of Colombia's natural uh, air or areas with Roundup. Uh, the Colombian government said that it was a crime against the environment and that nothing would justify the poisoning of rivers the destruction of, of, of natural habitats from, you know, pollinators to, to wildlife uh, because, of, because of the need to fumigate. So that, that was been very well received in Colombia. But of course, all, the drug traffickers have seized this opportunity to plant even more coca leaf. So the more coca leaf you have, the more coca roots you get, the more people along the production line to get to make the final product uh, cocaine so unfortunately yes this has been the partly a problem because the indigenous peoples actually staunchly protect their land but the ongoing conflict in colombia is about land and land rights and the the, the tragedy of fumigation uh which now we don't have but, you know, a lot of governments still want Colombia to go back to fumigating its rainforests with Roundup. The United and States, yeah. Colombia has said no, and it's not going to do it ever. And uh, you either manually eradicate um, coca, uh, coca or that's it. Yeah, well, that's that's good to know. Uh, we do have a caller who has a question for you. Steve, you're on the air. This is so engrossing, Mr. Ebling. Could you repeat the area of the crash site and perhaps, uh, looking at my uh, National Geographic Atlas, give me a major geographical feature that will help me orient that location. And then, uh, furthermore, for Esti, um, Embrace of the Serpent was made by Cristina Gallego in Quiroguera, mm -hmm. who more recently, in, in 2017, uh, made a film that is just peerless for the 20th century called birds of passage and this is oh that was a great movie yeah yes a narrative of the uh the late 60s and early 70s marijuana trade yeah and yeah. Uh, i'd highly recommend that thank you i highly recommend that movie uh, too though that's not Chris, the one i, I was see, talking sorry, about <laughs> go ahead richard the film the, uh, the birds of paradise uh it's fantastic it's about the yu peoples of northern colombia and of course, in that film, you will see the Wayu cultures and the who lived down in the desert and were the big contraband smugglers. I mean, they were they still are kind of fearless smugglers and the Arhuaco people who live in the Sierra. And uh, you will see exactly. And that's really a fantastic movie. And in a way that is as equally valid history of Colombia and as important as what we were seeing, we we witnessed with what happened with the children in the Amazon. Now, you asked me for very specific locations. Now, they were from something called the Araquara River Canyon. It's um, you can find it 
pretty much in anything in National Geographic. It's beautiful. It's a very important uh, part of Colombia. Um, the main river around there is called the Apoporis. And um, it's, uh, it's one of the big ma major canyons that goes through the Araquata. The major geo topographical area is one of the world's largest unvisited national parks called the Chiribiquete. It's uh, the size of Switzerland or bigger. Um, it was recently expanded and it's a very mountainous outcrop in the middle of the Amazon. When you fly to Leticia, which is the capital of the Amazonas department, when you leave Bogota, you kind of come in over the, you fly over the Amazon, all of a sudden you see these mountains towering over the rainforest. And it's amazing. Nobody can really has gone in there. You cannot go in there. And, and the Chiribiquete is one of the world's great natural, UNESCO named it one of the great wonders of the world. And uh, they have found rock art uh, painted in there that dates back to 30,000 BC. And the oldest documented rock art so far in the world is in France in the Lescaux cave. And that dates to between 12,000, 15,000 BC. So this area is incredibly uh, inhospitable, incredibly rugged. And uh, it's not just a flat. These children were not just on a flat you know, parkland. I mean, there were, there was everything around them. I mean, canyons, rivers, uh, dangerous cliffs, outcrops of rock. Uh, they, 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 it was not just a flat. I think a lot of people imagine rainforests always to be flat. And rainforests are not definitely not flat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. I, I think I probably am. <laughs> so yeah, I'm I'm grateful that you're adding this to my like internal landscape. But um, we are um, get, uh, six more minutes or so. So let me add actually to what you were just said. Um, and several of the rescuers are currently receiving hospital treatment in Bogota because they contracted pneumonia and tropical. Um, diseases and sev seven indigenous searchers with respiratory infections are still waiting to be transported to Bogota, which again suggested how difficult uh, the place is and yet the kids survived it. And so if you want to um, uh, comment on that and then tell us what has happened to the kids since they were found. I think they're still in hospital. Um, what's happening in that hospital? And because, you know, it um, would concern me to think that they're treated just in um, Western ways and that there are researchers who are trying to extract God knows what kind of scientific stuff. Um, tell us, Tell us about that too, please. No, it's a very important hospital. It's the main military hospital in Colombia. It's where mostly for almost 30 years, it was filled every room with young men amputated uh, or seriously injured by gunshot wounds, landmines from the war with uh, with the guerrillas. When the peace process was signed, uh, they only ended up with a handful of rooms. So it's that's been a good thing about since the peace process that Military hospitals no longer filled with uh, amputated young men. Uh, no, there's a great medical facility. Uh, they're very. Uh, it's the nurses are, as a, you know, most nurses I would say are mothers themselves, and and uh, they'll be looking after these children wonderfully. I think the main problem, I think, issue is that they will have uh, the tropical disease that's most common in that area is a very tiny worm, it's called the Leishmaniasis, and it eats its way underneath the surface of your skin, and then over time it creates mm. a big black infection. Literally, your foot goes black, and then you can have severe uh, poisoning of your, of, your, of your internal organs. It's a very dangerous little worm, it's almost microscopic, and uh, they're making sure that nobody has Leishmaniasis. It's very mm -hmm. common with army combat, uh, with, you know, special forces and commandos who are like in the, on the hunt for guerrillas or they have to liberate somebody who's been in captivity in that part of the world uh, by the rebels and they get end up getting leishmaniasis. 
But that's it. I think the children will be given uh, given good psychological, good some good treatment. I think they will recover very quickly. I think the real challenge is now, given the death threats of these children, they I don't think they can return back to the indigenous community. And I think that the problem for them will be adjusting to maybe a life in a big city like Bogota. Mm. Uh, I do know that the Colombian government, uh, with all its flaws and, and problems, does has taken a big interest, in, and Colombians are at large in these children. And like many other children, they should all be protected and and their rights protected. So I don't I don't fear for anything for them, but I don't think they'll be going back anytime soon to their communities. I think the father will probably end up living with them in Bogota and they'll get government assistance and they'll be looked after. They'll get private donations and those children will have a very good upbringing and, you know, insane, healthy, normal Colombian upbringing. But I think it's very sad, you know, they lost their mother and, uh, yeah. he, you know, that was the one thing I think that, you know, for many of us, I think the majority of us to see your mother die over four days inside a plane uh, would be traumatic enough. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. Do they have uh, indigenous visitors? Oh, yes, absolutely. There's a very yeah. big, powerful Colombian, the National Association of Indigenous Communities. It's, the, it's called the ONIC. And they represent all of Colombians and they have seats in, 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 in the Senate. They have House representatives. They will, they will, they will, um, they look after their own. And, and that, that's, you know, that's great. Yeah, well, that is good to know. Um, also interesting that the kids asked for books once they were um, rescued. And again, I think there's probably a perception of these kids being illiterate and so on. So you mentioned that they get good education, but um, it's, it's, it's a good point to uh, keep in mind. You have about one minute um, left. If there's anything you want to add that I have not asked you about. Well, Esti, I think it's, uh, as I say, I think it comes at a moment in Colombia and I think it's a message for the world. You know, we're yes. talking about these children that have endured incredible amounts of suffering, loneliness, 40 days in a rainforest. You know, the animals, the big anaconda, the snakes, the jaguars, the, uh, the huge, you know, felines that come out at night, they're not the threat. Animals are in their natural habitat and animals will not attack an 11 year old baby. I mean, this, they know how to deal with animals and communicate, but I do find it quite a story of resilience and hope. And I think in some ways and not to discredit, you know, the world has been focused in the last 40 or 72 hours on the death of these uh, tragic death of these four or five men inside this submersible. And the amount of money they have poured into boats and drones and, ROV operated high technology vehicles to go down, you know, 4,000 meters onto the sea yeah. and people spending half a million dollars on a seat to literally dive to their death in something that's not safe. And yet you have, you know, indigenous men and women in sandals with sticks willing to risk their lives to trek through very yeah. difficult yeah. terrain to save four children. And those children are not, you know, if they're happy to get a book, they're right. happy to get a $6 illustrated, you know, children's book out of it. Yeah, we, we are out of time, Richard, but I absolutely agree with your last words. Thank you so very much for joining us. I think that was a really important uh, conversation. Richard Amblin, director and editor-in-chief of The City Paper, Colombia's English language media company. It is, of course, available online. You can also um, find it on Twitter at City Paper Bogota. Thank you so much, Richard. Appreciate it. Absolutely, to, to the whole team. Good Fantastic. To Thank have you. you. Thank you. And thanks to Jaden Summer and uh, Shelly and Patty. I'm STD Noor. We'll be talking again next week. Bye bye. Straight from the base, deep down, low precision. High crime treason, we broadcast in sedition.